Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. So welcome to Fitness for Consumption. Once again, I'm your host, Paul Juris, and I am here with my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, how you doing? And what are we doing today? I'm doing well. And today, so you know, PJ, we spend a lot of times behind the scenes figuring out what we want to talk about on these podcasts. This is and true. we try to gauge um, what we think people might be interested in along with what where our expertise lies and and so you know we said in the very beginning this is going to be a podcast based on human movement science and we have a wide filter for that so we enjoy like the pop culture side of human movement we both like you know the sort of really down the rabbit hole very esoteric side of human movement science and everything in between so, we've done so we've hit the whole spectrum yeah we? and and that's <laughs> and that's great we and we both felt there was a need for this type of podcast to be out there so that was sort of mm-hmm. the genesis of it. but what we thought was really necessary in order to bring the conversation forward and we always look at this as we're doing this with the listeners not at the listeners that's right that in order to be able to in a meaningful way we have to figure out how to um bring people along on some of the more technical aspects of what makes up human movement science. And the most critical part of that, I believe, is what we're going to talk about today, which is torque. Biomechanics. Biomechanics. Okay. So today's discussion is on torque. So since we're on the topic, here's a riddle, Gigi. Why is a wall squat more like a leg extension than a back squat. That is a good riddle. So first of all, let's clarify for anyone that might not know what we're talking about. So a wall squat, meaning that my back is against a wall, my legs are a little bit in front of me, and mm-hmm. my weight might be pushing back into a wall, and I basically slide my upper body up and down the wall. Yeah, I slide my back up and down the wall. Yeah. You know, you see some people do that just flat against the wall. You see most, more people maybe doing it with a physio ball yeah. behind their back. But this is an exercise that is very frequently prescribed by trainers to their clients. And it's also something that 
people do on their own. Very cool. Um, and a new yeah. extension, of course, is you use a machine. And you can, you know, if you've got some sort of ankle weights or something, you can use free weights as well. But typically speaking, you are sitting in a machine and uh, you are just straightening your knee. So those sound like they'd be really different because one sounds like it's really isolating the knee joint. One sounds more of like an integrated total body exercise. That's right. And so my riddle is why is the wall squat more like the leg extension than a back squat? Now, a back squat, we didn't explain either, but that's sort of a free space, free body squat. You're not leaning against anything. You have a bar on your back, which is why we call it a back squat. And you lower yourself down toward the floor and you stand up. And my riddle again is why is that wall squat closer to being a leg extension than it is to being a back squat? And I'm going to tell you right now, they really are that different. A back squat and a wall squat are very different. And there's a hint. It has nothing to do with kinetic chain. So I think a lot of people that I've spoken with in the past mm -hmm. would jump right to, hey, you know, open chain, closed chain. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them different. But I'm telling you, no, that's not the answer to this riddle. So if it's not, if that's not the answer, it must have something to do with the forces in these exercise and how they're affecting our joints and the biomechanics of the exercise right mm -hmm. okay so i got another question then. Mm -hmm. so what so who cares <laughs> i mean <laughs> you know that's what the people listening to this are going to be asking it's like here we're going into this discussion about biomechanics and torque and i can just see inside their heads and they're like okay so who cares big deal so why should i care i mean what what difference does it make that's a great question. And I'm not sure I can even answer it to satisfy everybody, but at least here's the way I would think about it. So why should you care is why you would go to YouTube and type in best chest exercise. And let's say you keep scrolling and all of a sudden you see The Rock. And The Rock has a video, he posts workout videos all the time. And he says, the best chest exercise is a dumbbell fly. And look, The Rock seems credible. He obviously looks credible. So if you don't know biomechanics, all you can do is take his opinion, try it, you go to the gym, you see how it feels. If the next day you're really sore, then you say, oh, wow, that really worked. This, this probably is the best chest exercise. And that is one way of measuring something, but it's certainly not the best way of measuring something. And particularly, you have to know how these exercises affect you and your joints. What if you've got a torn labrum on one shoulder? What if you've got a subluxation on one side? So you, if you don't understand biomechanics, all you're really left with is opinion and then the sensation. And while that's not nothing, there's a lot more that you can learn that'll make your exercise experience much more efficient. And that's what this episode is about. So it comes down to really understanding what an exercise does. So we get back to the initial question, why is a wall squat more like a leg extension? And the answer is not so much that we can explain it because we can, but what we're really getting at here is if you understand why they're different, then you are empowered to make better choices about right. what you do. So knowing what an exercise actually does versus what people say it does or what you think it does or what it appears to do, that will help us to be wiser in the selections that we make. Mm -hmm. And by the way, just saying, 
but you've referenced The Rock in other podcast episodes <laughs> that we've done. So there must be something about The Rock that you that just kind of clicks in your head. No, you certainly like to reference him. My guy is and will forever be Sylvester Stallone. Uh, <laughs> I've I've worn out the vinyl on the Rocky Three soundtrack, um, but The Rock okay. is just ubiquitous. I just can't escape the guy. Like any the, anytime he's in I your turn face up, all the time, isn't <laughs> yeah. It? So, but and I, okay. I like The Rock. He's fine. But no, my. I'm a Sylvester Stallone guy all the way. All right. So, well, maybe Sylvester Stallone knows something about biomechanics and maybe, maybe. he doesn't. But what we are going to do, and maybe he'll listen to this and he'll yeah. learn something about biomechanics. So we're going to get into biomechanics. We are going to get into a discussion of joint moments. Uh, hence the title of this particular episode, In the Moment. So we are going to be talking about moments. And it is pretty technical. And so what we want to do is before we launch into this, we want to tell our listeners that, look, this is a super technical discussion. And in order to be fair to everyone who's listening, we're going to try to simplify the subject matter in a way that makes it easy to sort of absorb and understand. So if there's anybody out there who has a better understanding of the subject and really wants to get deep into some of the concepts, we're not going there. So apologies to you, but um, please touch base with us on our Instagram page uh, or on our Facebook roundtable group mm -hmm. and let us know what you want to talk about and we can always bring those things up. Yeah, because just because we're not going there for this introductory episode doesn't mean that we won't go there in future episodes that we'll be doing on biomechanics. There we go. So with that said, we're going to take a break for a moment. We'll come right back. And we're going to get into the moment. So stick with us. All right. Okay, we're back. Now, what we want to do, Gigi, is we want to help our listeners to visualize joint moments. And, and you know, I have to say that task is not easy. I mean, you and I have been back and forth about this. We've been planning this episode for quite a while, and most of it is to figure out what is the most effective and simplest way to illustrate this. Like, how do we accomplish this? Because this is a challenge. Yeah. And just to put it into context. So as I've mentioned several times on this podcast, I used to work for you when you were the chief science officer at Cybex. And most people would probably think the science officer at Cybex is doing studies and testing equipment all day, which was part of your job. But it was. what they might not know is that there was an educational arm of that research institute that taught courses to personal trainers. And so that's where I work with you. And so this concept was covered in some of those classes. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do our best to cover in about an hour is something that really would be more of like an eight-hour discussion with the benefit of having practical and visual aids, which we don't have here. That's so right. We have worked long and hard to try to figure out what's really important to uh, tease out about this topic and do it in the constraints that we have, which is just audio. Um, and you know, when I worked for you at Cybex, so there would be an instructor. And then there would be several assistant instructors. So we broke out in these practical groups, but we were called Sherpas. And that's a great title, meaning that like we're here to help guide you and to, to help stream you along the pathway to where it makes the most sense. So 
We are going to be the Sherpas for the listening audience today, and we're going to take them up this journey to understand some biomechanics and some torque. And when we're done, I think that everyone will be very pleased that they got to the end of the journey. And let's hope they get there without a broken leg or or a hemorrhage or anything else that occurs (laughs) along the way. Um, Okay, so that said, and that's well said, Gigi, I think, you know, in, in kind of bouncing around with this, the, there are a lot of moving parts to understanding torque. And the first part of this is to understand what those parts are. Mm-hmm. And I think the easiest way to explain that is to look at something that's very simple and a very commonplace item for most folks, and that's a seesaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody is familiar with a seesaw. And mm-hmm. so before we get into torque and the discussion of torque, let's just think about the parts that are included in a seesaw, which is essentially a leverage system. Mm-hmm. And once we understand that, then we can, even in our mind's eye, we can start to visualize the comparable parts in our anatomy. Um, but the seesaw is a great place to start. And it begins with a beam, which is mm-hmm. the flat board that we sit on. And it's got a handle on either end. So that's the lever. All right, but Mm -hmm. we'll refer to that as a beam. And then there's one other basic component to this seesaw, and you can tell us what that one is. Yeah, so a lot of times you hear it referred to as a fulcrum, Mm -hmm. but we're going to call it an axis of rotation um, for this discussion. But it's that thing in the middle that the beam rotates around. Right, so it's this sort of horizontal pole. It's a U-shaped pole Mm -hmm. anchored in the ground. The beam sits on top of it, and that horizontal pole is positioned directly in the center of the beam so Mm -hmm. that there's an equal uh, length of beam on either side of that fulcrum or axis of rotation. Okay. It's a lever. And just to make sure that everybody's clear, a lever is a rigid object through which we apply force. So Mm -hmm. in this seesaw, we're going to be applying forces to either side of the beam on either side of the fulcrum, and it's going to move. So here's the situation. Here's the scenario. You walk up to the seesaw. One end is down. The other end is up, sitting there doing nothing, and nothing's happening. There's potential for it to be doing something, but nothing's happening. Now, it could be sitting there with one end down and one end up. It also, Mm -hmm. we all know, it could be horizontal. It could be parallel to the ground and just sitting there. Mm and doing nothing. And when we refer to it in that state, we say it's in a balanced state. So nothing Mm -hmm. happens. Right. So I can imagine some people might be thinking, well, if one end is up and one end is down, how could that be balanced? But the point is that it's doing nothing. It's just sitting there and it would need some force put into it to um, be unbalanced. Well, and there's an interesting comment because there is force being applied to it. So why is there force being applied to it? Because gravity is acting on either side of the beam. Mm -hmm. So gravity is accelerating the beam down on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so there is force being applied because it's mass times acceleration. The beam has mass and gravity is accelerating it. So on each side, gravity is pulling down. But the fact is, Gravity's pulling equally on both sides. Mm -hmm. So the force is the same on both sides. 
and that creates a balanced state. So we need mm-hmm. to make sure that our listeners are clear that we're not talking about balance in terms of the beam being balanced in space. Mm-hmm. We're talking about whether the forces acting on the beam are balanced. Mm-hmm. And in order to get this thing to do something, we need to produce force in a way that unbalances it, that creates mm-hmm. a balanced state. So what do you do? How do you accomplish that? Well, so if it's just sitting there, one person would have to get on the seesaw so that one side would have more force than the other side. Right. And so you you sit on your end, it comes it lowers, you sit on your mm-hmm. end, and it's still not doing anything. Now it's interesting because you just applied, if you're on the downside and you just sat on it, you just applied more force to your side than there is on the other side. So it should move because now it the forces acting on it are, un, are unbalanced. On the other mm-hmm. side, there's nobody on it yet. It's just the beam. On your side, you're sitting on it. So it's the weight of the beam plus your body weight. So you have more force acting on it now, but it's still not moving. So what's happening there? Right. So when you're at the bottom, when the beam is touching the ground, there's a reaction force coming from the ground that's pushing up equal and opposite to your force. So in order to to get that to move, you've got to push into the ground so you can have an unbalanced force so that your end starts to rise. That's right. So that reactive force, when you're standing on the ground, you're applying force into the ground, but the ground is applying force back to you and nothing happens. It's the same thing on the seesaw. So if you want to move the seesaw, you have to apply force down into the ground, which is going to then come back at you as a reactive force. And if it's more than your own body weight and the beam combined, then the seesaw is going to move. So what you're doing there is you're creating an unbalanced force or unbalanced state, and that produces torque around the axis of the seesaw. So now with that, we have to ask, what is torque? So we've described how it works, but we sort of want to define it because in defining it, it's going to help us to uncover this and to put this puzzle together and uncover everything that allows us to really deeply understand this. So Mm -hmm. what is torque? So I'm glad you asked that question because torque is a special type of force, a twisting type of force that tends to cause rotation around an axis. Okay. So there it is. So torque is the tendency to cause rotation. So now let's change the scenario here a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of the beam being down, the seesaw being down, and you're getting on, you're walking up to it, you're about to get on, but now before you can hop on, your friend jumps on the other end, brings that end down, and now Mm -hmm. your end is sticking up above your head. Mm -hmm. And of course, your friend is giggling and laughing because you can't get on yet. The seesaw's up above your head. And you can't get onto it now. So what do you have to do? You've got to reach up and grab it and pull it down towards you in order to be able to get onto it. And so Mm -hmm. what's happening is you need to create torque in your direction. And it has to be greater than the torque that's rotating it towards your friend in the opposite direction. 
-hmm. And your friend having jumped on there is now adding resistance to the system. Mm -hmm. So this isn't going to move very easily. Right. In order for me to create torque and move it in my direction, I've got to overcome his resistance. That's right. And we call that creating a net torque. So mm -hmm. we would say that if I want to move the seesaw in my direction, I need to create a net torque towards me. Mm -hmm. And if your friend on the other side moves it in their direction, they're creating a net torque towards them. So mm -hmm. that's the key is creating net torque. If we don't have a net torque in one direction or the other, then the system is balanced again. And if it's balanced, nothing happens. Right. Because if I pull as just equally hard enough to match his resistance, I'm not creating that net torque in my direction. So it's not going to move towards me. All right. So you even answered the next question, which is fine. What happens if the effort that we're creating, the effort we're putting in to move it and the resistance created by your friend, what happens if they're equal? Nothing happens if they're equal. You have no net torque. And as a result, the system stays in its current state. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that we've established that, what we want to do is we want to explore some of the elements of the system and see how they influence net torque, mm -hmm. right? So the first one is, what is the magnitude of the force that's being applied? So, yeah, let's, let's start putting that in terms of the seesaw. So let's say we've got a child that weighs 60 pounds. So there's 60 pounds of force being applied on that side. And if you have someone who weighs 50 pounds on the other side, now there's a difference in 10 pounds. And so there's the potential to create a net torque towards the heavier side. Mm -hmm. So magnitude of force is critically important. Obviously, mm -hmm. the more force you apply, the more torque you can create, right? And vice versa. If you don't have as much force on the other side, then you're going to have less. So really, in order to move this, if there's a resistance in the system, you need to create more effort than there is resistance or else you're mm -hmm. not going to be able to move this. Okay. Right. And Thankfully, there's a way to do that. There is a way to do that. So here's a question. If I put somebody on one end, will the magnitude of force change while the seesaw is moving? So you're saying as the person that the, the person on the end, as they're, as they're moving through the arc of the seesaw, mm -hmm. does the magnitude of their resistance change as they're moving? That's the question. Okay, so that's kind of a tricky question because <laughs> if you think about it, so it's not that different than doing something like a dumbbell curl, like a bicep dumbbell curl. So everyone that's ever done a bicep dumbbell curl knows that, look, it's just not equally challenging throughout the entire part of the range. There's a reason you hang out at the very beginning of the exercise and it's not particularly strenuous. And then it gets harder in the middle and then maybe it tails off a little bit at the end. So something's changing. But if you're, when you started the rep, if you're still on the same planet, if you still weigh the same and the dumbbell still weighs the same, the resistance has actually not changed while you're doing the dumbbell curl, but something has. So no, the magnitude of the resistance isn't changing, but something's definitely changing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to say if, if the person's eating a bunch of Big Macs on their way up toward the top of the uh, the movement, then perhaps the resistance is changing as they keep putting food in their mouth.
So, um, but you know, you're absolutely right. We, we get this sense that something's changing. We get this sense that we're, we're not challenged the same way as this thing is rotating. But the reality is in that particular scenario with someone sitting on the beam, the resistance itself, the magnitude of the resistance does not change on that side. Okay, but now let's look at your side. You're pulling mm -hmm. down on the beam. Does the magnitude of that effort that you're putting into that, can that change? Well, that probably changes because the effort that I've got to put to put forth into my side of the beam, it's probably a little bit variable. So that side could change. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you just look at what happens to muscle force as the length of muscle mm -hmm. changes, right? The length the tension team, yep. curve, right? So as the muscle continues to shorten while you're pulling, you're actually decreasing the amount of tension that you can generate. Now, there are recruitment strategies that help us to maintain force output. So it's yeah. not just a muscle changing, but you're absolutely right. So on your side, there could be some variability to how much effort you're applying to the beam. Whereas on the opposite side, that weight, that mass, that force acting on it is constant all the way through. Mm -hmm. So there's a slight difference between the sides and how that works, right? So mm -hmm. another factor that affects the torque being created is the distance from the axis to the point where the force is applied, right? How far from the axis are you applying that force? That's going to affect torque. So the, yep. the farther out you go, the more torque you create. And then, you know, thinking of it conversely, and I think many of us should be able to recall this, when you were that child and you were playing, you know, on the seesaw with your friend and your friend was heavier than you. And so they were constantly getting it down and you were getting stuck up in the air. Mm -hmm. What did you do to resolve that? So what do you do? You move your friend closer to the axis in order to try to balance the thing out, mm -hmm. right? So right. even back then, when you were four years old, you understood something about biomechanics because you realized yeah. that you were moving the point of force application closer to the axis of rotation, and that was reducing the torque on that side. Mm -hmm. So there's this very clear thing that happens. The farther away you get from the axis, the more torque you can create, even at a constant force. So you move a constant force farther and farther from the axis, and you're creating more and more torque. Yeah, and let, let's just summarize. So, so far we've spoken about an axis of rotation. Mm -hmm. we, we've spoken about a distance from this axis of rotation, and we've spoken about the magnitude of a force. That's so right. So all of these characters are critical to understanding. Right. So, Gigi, you know, we've talked about the, the axis of rotation, the beam, the force and the distance that the forces are applied from the axis. And then there's one other variable here, which is the direction of force application. Mm -hmm. So we can apply force at any distance that we want. Mm -hmm. um, but the next factor that really influences the torque that's being generated in this system is the direction in which that force is applied. So mm -hmm. let's start with the resistance side. You have somebody sitting on it. What is the direction of force application? And I'll ask it in two ways. One is what is the direction of force application in space in general? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, 
what is that direction relative to the position of the beam? Because that is really what makes the difference here. It's not always the direction of application in space that matters, mm -hmm. but how that direction relates to the position of the beam. So right. let's kind of address that. Exactly. Well, if you can just imagine this line of gravity going straight down, mm -hmm. and if the beam happens to be level at this moment in time, then it's, it's intersecting with the beam in a perpendicular direction, meaning it's like the, the arrow is going straight down, the beam is going straight across, and together you can imagine they almost make like a 90-degree angle. Absolutely. Okay, so now the beam starts to rotate. Mm -hmm. Does the direction of force application in space change? No, but it's okay. direct. It's relationship to that lever changes. That's right. So the beam is rotating and its mm -hmm. angle in space is changing. The line of force or the direction of force applied by the person sitting on it is not changing. Mm -hmm. But the direction of force applied by the person is changing relative to the beam. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is that direction of force relative to the beam is getting closer and closer to parallel to the beam. You know, you just said a moment ago, when the beam is horizontal to the ground and the force is vertical, mm -hmm. that intersection is perpendicular, 90 degree angle. As the beam continues to rotate up and the force is still straight down, the angle between the force and the beam is now increasing until you're getting closer and closer to parallel. So that let me ask you a changing. question. So what would happen if you had two people of equal weight and you got the balance beam all the way up to where one person was sitting on the top of the beam and the beam was in a perfectly vertical position. So that's a really interesting question. So now all the force that I'm applying, remember I'm sitting on it. So mm -hmm. my force is vertical mm -hmm. and that is going straight down through the beam. Mm -hmm. So now all the force that I'm creating is going down through the beam and it's actually projecting directly through the axis. Mm -hmm. And if that force that I'm creating is projected right through the center of the axis, mm -hmm. nothing happens. Now I've mm -hmm. got a balanced state again. There is no torque being created. So the only way that I can actually create a torque is if the force that I'm creating is off-center, is eccentric to the axis. And even if it's a little bit, so mm -hmm. if, if I shift my weight a little bit and it goes and the line of force is slightly offset from the axis, I'll start to move again because there's torque there. But if the force is parallel to the beam and runs right through the axis, nothing happens. Right. So if you were stuck on there, you'd have to try to wiggle back and forth until you got to the point where you were just a little bit outside of being right on top of that axis so you could create some torque and get it moving again. What we need to understand is, at least on the resistance side, which is the side that this person is sitting on, your friend is sitting on, there the direction of force application stays the same as it is in space. It's mm -hmm. vertical all the way through, which is the same thing with a dumbbell, by the way. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a dumbbell curl earlier. Yeah. As you curl a dumbbell, move a dumbbell through space, gravity is acting on it the same way. Um, but the direction of that force relative to the beam in the curl, it would be your forearm. There's an angle there between that force and the angle of your of the beam, and that's changing. Mm -hmm. And as that gets closer and closer and closer to parallel, the amount of force, the effect of that force and causing rotation decreases. 
before when you were discussing the beam being parallel and the force being perpendicular to it, when the force is perpendicular to the beam, all of that force is tending to cause rotation. Mm -hmm. But as the angle of the force or the direction of force gets closer to parallel to the beam, not all of that force now is causing rotation. Mm -hmm. So if the direction is angled towards the axis, then some of that force is just pushing the beam into the axis, mm -hmm. right? In an anatomical condition, we would say that's compression. Mm -hmm. So you're compressing the bone or the limb segment into the joint. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if the direction of force is away from the axis, mm -hmm. then some of that force is causing distraction, pulling the lever or the limb segment away from the joint. Mm -hmm. So the thing to keep in mind here is as the angle between the force and the beam gets closer and closer to parallel, the turning effect, the rotation effect, the tendency to cause rotation is steadily decreasing. Mm -hmm. And so to the point you made before, something is changing. Yes, what's changing is the effect of that force in causing rotation because the direction of force and the direction of the beam, the angle of the beam are getting closer and closer to parallel. And that's decreasing the rotational effect of the force. Mm -hmm. So again, let's summarize again. So for torque, we need a force. We need an axis of rotation. We need to know the distance of that force to the axis of rotation. And we need to know the direction of that force. Exactly. And when we take the distance and the direction and put them together, we have something that we refer to as a moment arm. Mm -hmm. So we're combining how far away from the axis we're applying the force and the direction that the force is applied. And together, those create a moment arm. And it's the moment arm that is really determining how much of a rotational load there is on the axis. Put in anatomical terms, the bigger the moment arm, the greater the load on the joint. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we have something really interesting. There's this moment arm thing. And we're trying to get our listeners to start to visualize, all right, we're talking about a seesaw, but really we're going to start talking about anatomy mm -hmm. because we want to get back to the question of, this wall squat. Right. So what we're asking people to do is to visualize a moment arm. And let me say that we don't need to calculate this. We don't need to get out there with a slide rule and a scientific calculator and pull out our trigonometry. What we're able to do with a little bit of imagination here is relatively look at where the moment arm is in any given exercise, which is telling us how much load there is on the joint. The greater the moment arm, the greater the load. And the greatest moment arm occurs when you apply the force as far away from the axis as you can and at a perpendicular angle to the beam. Mm -hmm. That will create the greatest moment arm. Right. The smallest moment arm could be some combination of moving closer to the axis where you apply the force and changing the angle of the force application so that it gets closer and closer to the axis. 
that would minimize the moment arm and then that would decrease the torque loading. So let me just say one thing quickly before we break the moment arm down a little bit is that absolutely for our purposes and for the purposes of being able to go to the gym tomorrow and start making better decisions, you definitely don't need to bring your protractor and calculator and slide ruler. But lest anyone think otherwise, PJ, in a real lab setting, of course, those measurements are critical. And that's actually what's done in, in biomechanical uh, movement models. Oh, absolutely. And, and what we do in a biomechanics lab is we have instruments that measure these things. So when we're looking at something like a squat or any other exercise, we'll do that using force transducers. It could be a force plate. It could be an instrument that handle on a bar so that we can actually measure the magnitude of the force and also the direction of the force. So we mm -hmm. know where the force is being applied. So we know the distance of that force to any joint or, or any structure. We know the direction because these are three-dimensional uh, force transducers. So we can see it in 3D space. Mm -hmm. So we can measure the magnitude and the direction and combining that with a motion capture system, we can very, very accurately and carefully measure these things, which is what we did at Cybex. We mm -hmm. studied all of these things. And we'll even talk about um, when we get into the wall squat, we can talk a little bit about some of the findings. And those are based on work that we did in the lab. Mm -hmm. So, yes. So instruments do that. But the point that we're trying to make here is mm -hmm. you don't need to set up a biomechanics lab to be able to visualize and understand what's going on here with the moment arm. And we'll talk about that in a second. How do we actually visualize a moment arm and see it in space? And we'll do that when we return. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. So Gigi, we have basically stated the importance of understanding the moment arm. And let me make something really clear here to our listeners. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't measure stuff because I think measurement is the key to, to understanding. And we need to be able to measure. But in some instances, what we're really measuring here is a relative difference between conditions. Mm -hmm. It's still a measure, but in this case, it's more of an observational measure but it gives us some clarity. It gives us some understanding. And so what we're trying to do here is visualize a moment arm during an exercise, because when we do that, if we can get a sense of how big that is, then we can really compare one exercise to another and say, what's the difference between these? Well, it's the torque. And how do we know that? Because we have a sense of how large these moment arms are and how they're affecting the performer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I've mentioned, I'm a clinician and I'm a personal trainer. Being able to look at moment arms instantaneously while I'm working with someone, as opposed to saying, well, you know, I saw in the manual we're supposed to be doing shoulder presses today and then, you know, not understanding torque. And then here in two days later, someone really hurt their shoulder and I thought I was doing what should be a good shoulder exercise. Being able to look at a moment arm and understand the language of it 
be able to make changes instantly where I know I can put more or less load on a joint that, you know, maybe is healthy, maybe isn't, is critical to really, if you're an, if you're an exercise professional, to really creating what I consider to be really personal training. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is when you're looking at this stuff, you know, the, the moment arm is not sitting there in bright red with yeah, flashing lights that yeah. says, here's the moment arm. Now, I will say, though, and this is the advantage of using a cable system in the gym. Mm -hmm. The cable is really helpful because that is the line of force. The cable is the line of force. See, the problem is for most exercises, we can sort of visualize the line of force. If it's a dumbbell, we know that gravity is acting on it vertically. So we know that line of force is vertical. But for a lot of exercises, we don't always know it. And you can't see it. You can't mm -hmm. see force, right? There's no mm -hmm. color to force. So the cable, and if we're doing cable curls or cable presses or any kind of cable exercise, that cable is the line of force. And so it's really helpful to us because we can see where it is in space, how it's directed, and what its direction is relative to any limb segment that is attached to it in any way. Mm -hmm. So that's very helpful. But here, we're going to have to make some assumptions. Yeah. So let's, in order to visualize a moment arm, let's start with the resistance side of this seesaw. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a person sitting on the beam, and gravity is accelerating that person straight down. So the line of force is straight up and down. It's vertical in space. Mm -hmm. How do we determine, how do we visualize the moment arm for that particular condition. Now I'm going to throw a little bit of a wrench into this thing. Okay. That person is now down on the ground. So the beam is angled down towards them. I'm up in the air. They're down on the ground. So the beam is at an angle to them, but their mm -hmm. force is now applied vertically through space. How do we figure out where the moment arm is in order to determine relative torque load at that position in space. So what we still need to do is we need to know where the line of force is going and we mm -hmm. need to know where the axis of rotation is. So once we have those two, what we then need to do is starting from the axis of rotation, draw a line that eventually intersects with the line of force at a 90 degree angle. Okay. So we may say that the line of force is directed downward, but if you can imagine in your mind's eye, if the beam is angled down toward the ground and I draw a line downward through the ground, mm -hmm. there's no point at which a line coming out of the axis is going to intersect with that line of force at a 90 degree angle. So what I need to do is also draw the line straight up in the air. Mm -hmm. And so when we try to visualize a moment arm, we need to take that line of force and extend it in both directions. Mm -hmm. The way we think the force is applied as well as the opposite, the reactive direction. Mm -hmm. So now with the line extended in both directions, all I need to do is starting at the axis, bring a line over to that line of force and intersect it at a point at which the line of force and the line from the axis are perpendicular to one another. Right. And let's also be clear, because PJ, we, especially in the world of human movement science, there is a lot of gray area and a lot of like, well, maybe sort of, but in this particular instance, this is what a moment arm is. It's got to be 90 degrees. It's got to be perpendicular to the line of force from the axis of rotation. It can't be 78 degrees. It can't be 113. 
It's got to be 90. If we're going to visualize it this way, then it absolutely has to be 90. That said, and we're not going down this deep, dark rabbit hole. There are other ways of doing this, mm -hmm. but that would require trigonometry. So without having to get into that level of application, which we could do in future episodes, in order that the simplest way to do it is just to visualize a line coming from the axis that intersects the line of force at a 90 degree angle. And that distance between the axis and the line at that point is the moment arm. Mm -hmm. So now let's take this over to the other side of the seesaw now, because I'm pulling down on this. And as we mentioned earlier, I may not be pulling down in the same direction. I mean, I may start it, it's above my head. I start pulling it down and it'll reach a point at which I have to turn around and push it. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, it can completely change the direction of the applied force. Mm -hmm. So the so when I'm pulling on this thing and pushing on it, it's not at a constant direction like mm -hmm. on the other side. It's constant because gravity is accelerating it straight down. I'm creating the force on this side mm -hmm. and that could be applied in any direction. Mm -hmm. Now, this is why if you visualize yourself pulling and you grab it up above your head and pull, it's possible that initial pull, the force that you apply that direction could be perpendicular to the beam. Mm -hmm. And if it is, then the moment arm is the entire length of the beam from the point that you apply the force to the axis because that line of force is perpendicular to the beam. Mm -hmm. But what if the beam's at an angle and I'm pulling it at a different angle? Well, again, this is the term moment arm indicates a given moment in time. So you That's just right. have to freeze it at whatever moment you happen to be pulling. Thankfully, it's the same solution. So you have to freeze it a moment in time, wherever mm -hmm. that direction happens to be, you have to go to the axis of rotation, you take out your line, and you have to intersect with that line perpendicular. Now, to your point, literally, and joint motion happens way faster than this, but you, know, you could move the seesaw 20 degrees in two seconds, and the way you're pulling or pushing on it at that point, you could have a different uh, line of force that is going to change the moment on, but it's all about the moment in time. So you have to freeze the force, the direction of the force at a moment in time, but then you do the same exact thing. Go That's from right. The axis. So even if I'm pulling the beam at some odd angle, if I can get a sense of which direction I'm pulling, then I extend that line in both directions away mm -hmm. from me and toward me and then take a, a line from the axis and intersect it with that line of force at a place where they are at 90 degrees to one another. And that distance from that line to the axis is the moment arm. Mm -hmm. You know, a very easy way to think about this though, is as we look at forces and their effects on joints, as we get to solve the, pro the problem that we started with, mm -hmm. is as the line of force gets closer to the joint, the torque is getting lighter, smaller. Mm -hmm. And as the line of force moves away from the joint, it's getting heavier. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the key to understanding this is knowing what a moment arm is, is very helpful. It's very helpful in visualizing what's happening. But as the line of force that we create, that we create gets closer to the joint, it's getting easier. And as it's getting farther from the joint, it's getting harder. Mm -hmm. And 
I suggest that anyone who wants to really try to visualize this, go grab a cable mm -hmm. and try moving the limb, do chest presses and do lateral raises and do biceps curls and watch that cable and how it moves towards and away from the joint, the elbow joint, if it's a biceps curl mm -hmm. and get a sense of, is this getting heavier or is this getting easier? Mm -hmm. And that's really going to help us to visualize what's going on. Yeah. Cable is a great place to start. Okay, so I think we've covered all the basics. I use that term very lightly. <laughs> <laughs> all the basics of torque. All right, so we know that a torque system has an axis. It has an effort and a resistance. We need to create an unbalanced state in order to create a net torque in one direction or another. We know that we have to apply force at a certain distance from the axis and that at a certain direction in the distance and the direction create a moment arm. And basically the moment arm times the force is what gives us the torque. Ah, so that's the really secret formula. That's the secret formula. Force times moment arm equals torque. And so when we're looking at two sides of this system in order to create motion, we can't have balance. What we need is for one side to be greater than the other. So torque times moment arm on one side has to be greater than torque times moment arm on the other side, and we get motion. So PJ, I know we said there'd be no math, but can you just put it in a formula really quickly for people so people can see honestly how easy it is? Well, <laughs> easy is relative, but <laughs> let's say we typically do In the do seesaw this... example. So let's say one child is 60 pounds. Okay, so let's say, you know, you have one child at 60 pounds and they're positioned when it's when it's horizontal. Mm -hmm. So let's put the beam horizontal so okay. we make this really easy. Yep. Let's say they're two feet away from the axis. Mm -hmm. The torque on that side is 60 times two mm -hmm. or 120 pound feet of torque. Mm -hmm. Right. Some people have heard the term foot pounds. Uh-huh. Um, there's really no, technically no difference between foot pounds and pound feet, but the metric version of this, the standard scientific version of this calculation is Newton meters. And so Newtons are forces and meters are distances. So it goes force distance. So we would relate this as pound feet, mm -hmm. force distance. So let's say on the other side, you have a 50 pound person. And they're two feet away from the axis. So they're spaced equidistant. Mm -hmm. There are a hundred pound feet of torque on the opposite side. Right. So you have 120 on one side and you've got a hundred on the other side. Well, this thing's going to be moving towards the heavier side mm -hmm. because you have a net torque of 20 pound feet, 10 pounds in difference in weight, 20 pound feet in torque. So now we get back to the question at the top of the segment. Why is a wall squat closer to a leg extension than it is to a back squat? Yeah, now we're not actually going to do what I just did. We're not coming up with actual torque calculations here. What we're going to do is visualize the difference 
in relative load between the joints based on understanding where the moment arm is. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay, because what we're saying here is you have one person who's doing a wall squat and that same person is doing a back squat. Mm -hmm. All right. So this really comes down to understanding the moment arm in these two different exercises and then seeing what that means in terms of how the joints are operating. Mm -hmm. Okay, now before we do that, biomechanically, when we're talking about joint moments, and that's exactly what we're getting at here now, or joint moments, understanding the moment that's created around a joint, what we're really measuring is what the joint side has to do, what the muscle joint interaction is doing to overcome the resistance of the external load. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for example, just as we're looking at the biceps curl, we know that there's a dumbbell in our hand that's creating a resistance. But when we talk about the joint moment, we're actually talking about what the elbow flexors are doing at the elbow in order to move the weight into elbow flexion. And we refer to that as an elbow flexor torque or an elbow flexor moment. moment. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what we're talking about here. And then one last thing, we mentioned this before, when we're looking at something like a wall squat or a back squat, what we really have to be looking at is not the force that we're generating, because when we push, we push down into the ground. We're actually visualizing the reactive force component, mm -hmm. right? So this is Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when you push down, the ground is pushing back up against us with a force equal in magnitude and opposite direct in direction. Mm -hmm. That's the force that we're looking at is the reactive force and how that's affecting us. Right. And that's what makes this wall squat example a little bit tricky because it, it may not be as obvious as it, someone might think it is at, the, at first glance. That's true. So let's set it up. So here we're on the wall. Mm -hmm. And you said earlier, our back is up against the wall. So yeah. let's say that our back is flat against the wall, basically from our shoulder blades down to our pelvis. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the bottom half of our pelvis is slightly off. But for mm -hmm. the most part, we're flat against the wall. Our feet are, let's say, you know, two feet away from the wall. So mm -hmm. our heels are about two feet away from the base of the wall. And we've lowered ourselves down the wall so that our legs are parallel to the floor. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody can sort of visualize that position that yeah. we're in. Okay. The first question that I would have for you, Gigi, is in which direction are we applying force? So we're pushing, obviously, down into the ground, but we're also pushing forward a little bit, too, because we're pushing our backs against the wall. So it's not directly vertically down. It's not completely horizontal. It's... Uh, a, a direction somewhere in between the two more skewed towards the vertical. So interestingly enough that, you know, if people doubt that, if you think you're pushing down, try doing this with rollerblades on and see what happens. Um, your feet will go flying out forward in front of you. So yes, indeed, you are absolutely pushing forward as well as down. And the interesting thing about this position is the specific direction that the reactive force goes, it's going to go to the lowest point on your back that makes initial contact with the wall. Okay. So think about it. Your back's in contact with the wall, let's say all the way down to maybe the top of your sacrum. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So the force originates in your foot. Let's say the ball of the foot. The force originates in the ball of the foot. You push down and forward, which means the reactive force goes up and back. Mm -hmm. And it makes contact with the wall at the lowest first point of contact with the body, which is right about at your sacrum. Mm -hmm. So now visualize this position. Your thighs are parallel, you're lowered, and you have this line of force that's going up and contacting the wall somewhere right around your pelvis. Right. And it's actually passing underneath your knee at this point. It's behind the knee and it's slightly in front of the hip. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can we visualize the moment arms for the knee and the hip? Now it's acting on the ankle and it's acting on the knee and it's acting on the hip. Mm -hmm. Now it gets really interesting because where it is in relation to the joint is what it's trying to telling you what it's trying to do to the joint. So if the line of force is behind the knee, it's trying to bend the knee. Mm -hmm. So that's trying to cause knee flexion. So what we need to do in response to that is create a knee extensor torque. If it's in front of the hip, it's trying to create hip flexion. So we need to create a hip extensor torque. And if it's in front of the ankle, it's trying to create dorsiflexion. So we need to create a plantar flexor torque. Okay. So this sounds like it's getting really complicated, but let's let's think it through so we know we've got a line of force and let's just bring it right back to the example we used before so nothing has changed here in terms of the way we're going to calculate the torque so we've got our line of force and mm -hmm. we spoke about the axis of rotation of the seesaw which was that one horizontal beam going across the seesaw axis mm -hmm. of rotation we actually have in our body we, they are joints so we've got an axis of rotation at the ankle joint We've mm -hmm. got an axis of rotation, which is the knee joint, and we've mm -hmm. got an axis of rotation at the hip joint. And mm -hmm. so we've got our axis of rotation. So we're already two-thirds there. We've got our line of force. We already said it's coming up. Uh, it's, it's more skewed towards vertical, but there's a horizontal component to it. It's coming behind the knee. So we can all imagine that line of force. We know where our axes of rotation are. Now, all we have to do is go from each individual axis of rotation draw a line that intersects with this line of force in a perpendicular direction. That's right. And so let's leave the ankle out of it for a minute because the key to unraveling this mystery lives with the hip and knee. So right. if I am going to draw a line from the knee joint axis to that line of force and intersect them at a perpendicular angle. And I'm going to do the same between the hip and that line of force. Which of those lines is greater? Well, it's got to be the knee if you can visualize it, because it's going to be basically right above the hip. That's right. So that line of force is very close to the hip and it's much farther away from the knee. And what that means is when you're in that position, you are creating significantly more torque at your knee than you are at your hip. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you know, I said earlier, we did some of this research in the lab at Cybex. And the reality is that when you do this exercise on the wall, you're actually creating 30% less hip moment a hip mm. torque when you're doing the wall squat than you are the back squat 
Hmm. Conversely, you're producing 30% more knee torque in the wall squat than you are in the back squat. Hmm. So when you do the wall squat, the moment at your knee is significantly greater than the moment at your hip. Well, that's like a leg extension. (laughs) With a leg extension, the knee extensor moment is greater. It's big. That's what you're doing. Right. In a wall squat, you are creating a significantly greater knee extensor moment. And that makes it closer to a knee extension exercise than a back squat. Right. And that's... uh really brings us back to one of the original questions you had pjs so who cares like well just because they're different who cares well so first of all if you're doing a lower body exercise you might want to distribute the stress uh, fairly evenly amongst ankle knee and hip joints but you don't have to there are certainly options where you don't have to but the interesting thing about this particular exercise the wall squat is that this is what i see all the time prescribed to people who are having knee issues, knee pain, they may be recovering from knee surgery, and at the expense of using something like um, a knee extension because they think that you know knee extension is inappropriate. So that's where this stuff matters because if you think that you're doing this exercise because it is the least amount of load for the knee, you're using the wrong exercise to solve the wrong problem. So therein lies the answer to the question, so what? So what? So the wall squat puts more stress on the knee than it does the hip. So what? And the answer is it doesn't really matter that it does, right? Does it make it a bad exercise? Because there, no. But choosing to do that, choosing to use that exercise, thinking that either A, it's less stressful to the knee or B, it's going to help to develop the glutes and and hip Mm -hmm. extensors more. That's a bad choice. It doesn't make the exercise bad. It makes the selection of the exercise bad. And so understanding how these things come together, understanding that these joint moments arise and it creates a different condition than what we think it is, that's going to help us to make better choices and select better exercises and do them for the right reason, mm-hmm. not simply because it's popular to do them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's what really matters here. Absolutely. Well, Gigi, that was a very technical conversation. <laughs> and I, I think we actually got through it. And hopefully our listeners were able to follow along with us and understand what we were discussing. Um what do you think people should do if they have some questions or if there are other exercises that you know they want to talk about or hear about like where do they go what do they do what you should do is go to our new facebook page which is the fitness for consumption roundtable and um maybe you want to ask dr j questions about you know very specific nuances they do in a lab or engage with us let us know where you're having questions let us know what you're interested in and the best place to do that is on our fitness for consumption roundtable on facebook or find us on instagram at fitness for consumption and just let us know what you're thinking